This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Mr. Chief Justice. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. Our opinion next turns to the problem of what the judicial role should be. In light of what we've learned about the role of Facebook and Cambridge Analytica in the 2016 election, what does it mean to have unfounded trust in a social media company and whether or not we're having the same type of unfounded trust in either the government or other types of private entities when it comes to biological information? This is Life of the Law. Welcome to In Studio. I'm Nancy Mullane, executive producer, and we're in the studio to talk about our most recent episode, Gattaca Revisited, Up the Borrowed Ladder. Joining me in the studios of KQD in San Francisco are Osagi Obasagi, professor at the UC Berkeley School of Public Health and a member of Life of the Law's advisory board, Tony Gannon, our senior producer, and here in the studio, Lee Witkowski, policy analyst at the Innovative Genomics Institute at UC Berkeley. So Gattaca was released in 1997, about 20 years ago. It was a sci-fi film, and it was about bioethics in the future. Tony, why don't you give us an update? What was Gattaca all about? Gattaca Revisited Up the Borrowed Ladder is an episode covering the scope of bioethical dilemmas that we are either in now or very fast approaching. One person asked me about, in the title, The Borrowed Ladder. Um, And I wanted to spell that out by way of summary. It didn't make the final cut for some reason. In the movie, the main character, Vincent Anton Freeman, whose own genetic code makes him an invalid, has to assume or borrow the DNA of someone with better DNA, that of Jerome Eugene Morrow. So in the movie, it's a very quick line, but people that do this, that buy or borrow someone's DNA, are referred to as borrowed ladders, also degenerates. So it's sort of a derogatory term for people in the universe of Gattaca. So the episode came about in conjunction with two screenings of the film, one at UC Berkeley, the other at the San Francisco Public Library, organized by the Center for Genetics and Society, as well as the Haas Institute for a Fair and Inclusive Society at UC Berkeley. We made an episode basically about our experience at these two panels. Producer Andrea Hendricks and I went to both of these screenings and then sat with the outcomes of these discussions, as well as the film, for what seemed like a very long time, but it was more, it was like three weeks. And then the last thing I'll say is that producing this episode was really fascinating in that the vast majority of the things that we were talking about were just over my head, but I knew while I was making it that I would need to make decisions about the things that we were talking about in my lifetime, about my own genetic code, and potentially about my offspring. And right now, it seems like with all the opportunities to have your genetics, your your own personal genome tested to find out, hey, what percentage of, you know, Irish am I? What percentage of whatever am I? And what kind of problems does my genetic code carry? You know, it seems like that's a positive thing. You know, it's like everybody wants to have it done. My friend, just her daughter went and had it done. And she's a teenager. And I said, wait, Do you know any of the consequences of that? So Lee and Asagi, you study this. What are the problems with getting your genome tested? 
So this is something actually in a funny way. I had a conversation yesterday, I want to say it was, with my mom about this very topic. Uh, We were in a car ride for about three hours and we're talking about a lot of things. And she, um, she said that she was interested in maybe getting screened for Alzheimer's. So there's 23andMe is one of the companies that you can get some information on these kinds of more medical, medically applicable uh, genes. And I, I kind of pushed around. I was like, really? <laughs> why? Why Why would you want to do that? I mean, is there something you would do with that information? And that kind of led us into this conversation of just what you asked. What are all the, the reasons to do it or not to do it? And I, I think it boils down to, um, you know, there's there's a few. There's the idea that a lot of these are correlation and not causation. And so there's... Wait, core? Correlation. So correlation to what? To a, to some kind of outcome. So you have a population of people that have a gene, a mutation in a gene. And these are usually mutations. So everybody has the genes, but it's the mutation in the gene that matters. And there's a correlation um, that you can make and that scientists have made uh, showing that certain mutations... Um, correlate, meaning they have a coincident with a certain outcome medically. Um, so there are, there are many that we know at a molecular level that we can go beyond correlation and we can see actually, um, you know, support with causation where we can do experiments and see really what that mutation does at a molecular level. But there are many that we don't. Um, and something like Alzheimer's is a very complicated uh, disease and it's not totally clear the extent uh, that things are just correlative versus causative. So that's one of the big things that comes up is, you know, when you're reporting somebody's genome, you're reporting on uh, correlations mostly. So if it's not a clear correlation, then you could have a sign that you have that mutation, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you have Alzheimer's. That's right. Or that you will definitely get it. Or you will get it. On the other hand, you know, like I said, there are some that we have really dug in more at the molecular level, like sickle cell anemia, where where we know it's much more causative. We know if you have the mutation that you are you are going to have the disorder as well. But there are many that we don't know that. So, in other words, you look at someone's gene, their, is it called their genome? Mm-hmm. You look at their genome and you see these mutations. Mm-hmm. And there's not necessarily, you see, a muta- oh, there's a mutation. And that mutation could correlate with Alzheimer's or, but wait a minute, if, if, if you see the mutation and it could correlate with Alzheimer's, but it's not absolutely sure, well, what do you do with that anyway? Yeah, right. So, so usually it's that it, it does correlate, but it could cause so, so what would your mom do with that information so that's what, what that's kind of what I asked her is what would you do and you know she was like well there are some lifestyle changes you can make and I said well yeah most of those are and she's probably gonna listen to this so I'm sorry mom that Hi, I'm mom. recounting our private conversation <laughs> but she said you know there's there's lifestyle changes you can make that reduce your chances again um, these are probabilities reduce your chances of getting Alzheimer's and I said, well, yeah, those are things like um, diet and exercise and reading and keeping your mind sharp. And and those things correlate with many other diseases and aren't those things you would want to do anyway. <laughs> so, you know, knowing this, are you really, you know, are you saying that you wouldn't do those unless you knew you were going to get Alzheimer's? Or, you know, the other alternative and the way that I generally see it um, for myself, and these are personal things, but for me, it's 
if I knew that I had a very high chance of developing Alzheimer's rather than, you know, feeling confident in my ability to take action against that, I would mostly feel scared (laughs) for the next however many years. And anytime I forget something, I would start to wonder, is that, you know, what is that? Is that normal or is this the beginning of something? So we talked about that for a while and, and what that would really mean. And the other thing that came up, though, that I think is, you know, again, from my perspective, is probably a really useful thing to consider is things like estate planning. And, you know, if you knew that this was a really high likelihood, you could start to do things like prepare for what kind of uh, care you want and, and what you would want to leave to your children. And But then, you know, on the flip side, those are also things that you would probably want to do anyway. So... So it's it's complicated. But the way you're describing it, it's a positive thing that you could prepare, you could change your diet, you could exercise. I mean, these are all really positive things if you have an indication that coming down the road, maybe you could delay or alter, you know, something that is physically you're carrying that could, you know, you could delay the impact, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But Gattaca, the movie, also introduced that this is a future society where not only do we have that genomic information later in life, we actually, they capture it, and this is a future society, but they capture it before, you know, the egg and the sperm even meet. And they, you know, identify those problems that that an egg or a sperm could be carrying, or I guess an egg is carrying. They pull out anything that's negative, and then you have these potentially ideal people and they're the valids and then the invalids are the ones that are made without the genomic kind of manipulation so i mean the problem is is what happens you know on the back end of that society where you actually plan these valid people and the invalids have to borrow the you know a perfect valid person's genes to actually integrate into society because the invalids are you know excluded in so many ways. So what's the problem? Right. So I think even in the situation that Lee um, is talking about in terms of her conversation with her mother, um, there are certainly possible um, positive things in terms of maybe getting more information might stimulate someone to start making better lifestyle choices in ways that um, they wouldn't do so without that information. But there's also some potential downsides. So, Lee, I don't know how old your mother is. You know, you can imagine a situation that, uh, you know, if if your mother or someone else took a test like this and found out they had some predisposition towards Alzheimer's, would they be able to get insurance? You know, uh, how this this information is not something that only individuals will want, but other entities such as insurance companies, employers may also want to have access to the information or in order to make determinations about who to insure or who to hire. And so this is where Gattaca, I think, is is quite profound in that it, it's showing how society might reorganize itself in, in, in light of having broader access to this type of information. And, and Gattaca is, you know, it's it's Hollywood. So it's a, it's a quite, it's an extreme version or vision of what that society might look like. But you can imagine a lot of situations just short of Gattaca that may very well come to pass as a result of having greater access in, to this information. And those outcomes aren't particularly good. You know, I don't quite uh, trust my insurer to be able to take information about my genetic predispositions. I think we should be skeptical about whether or not for proper entities like insurance companies to be trustworthy with regards to making ethical and appropriate decisions with regards to people's genetic predispositions. 
Um, so I think maybe we should talk about, since we're, we're talking about insurance companies in particular, um, the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act. So, so broadly speaking, this is a law that um, was passed for a couple of reasons. And, and one that I think is interesting and should be mentioned is after um, the Human Genome Project, there was this idea that, oh, my gosh, we're, we're going to get you know, cheaper and cheaper access to sequencing DNA and everybody is going to want to do it because you can learn so much information from your genome. Um, which has come to pass. Which has somewhat come to pass. But uh, one of the problems that this law addresses is that um, people were were a little afraid to do that um, because there's really, up until this law, there was really no guarantee that that information would, would not be used against you in some way. Um, so this law was partly put in place to give people peace of mind so that they could participate in this genetic revolution. And so the law, essentially, it says that insurance companies cannot use your genetic information against you. So they can't deny you coverage for a pre-existing condition that is genetically baked in. And they can't uh, raise your premiums because of that either. So, you know, that that's good news to a lot of people. And I think um, in some ways, you know, that addresses directly Osagi's concern about this is, is what's going to happen if I find out that... You know, I'm going to be a burden, so to speak, um, medically in the future. So this law was, in a, on one hand, a way to give people peace of mind so that they could really take advantage of the new technologies and, and get sequenced without concern. But it was also, you know, actively to try and think in the future and prevent some of this um, discrimination and, and, you know, negative consequences of the new genomic era that we're in. So was this a federal law that was passed? Yes. So it protects people from discrimination based on uh, a, 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 an insurance company or an employer's access to your your genomic makeup. Like if they That's find right. out that you have um, you have a predisposition, you have a mutation that could potentially lead to something at a certain point, then an employer could justify saying, well, you know, I don't think we should hire them. It's almost like getting your Facebook posts, you know, it's like a, a private part of your life that, hey, nobody was monitoring Facebook. And now people use employers use Facebook to determine right. whether to hire or fire. So um, the interesting thing is, in this case, you know, Congress kind of had some foresight on that where they didn't in Facebook. Um, and they were able to put a law in place. But I think it links back to the Gattaca screening because, you know, it turns out that in that imagined world, it was illegal to discriminate. So it was legal, illegal, illegal. No, in Gattaca, in Gattaca, it was illegal. Yes. Right. So there's a great line in Gattaca where they talk about how it's illegal to discriminate based upon um, one's genetic background. But then Ethan Hawke says something, but nobody takes the law seriously anyways. It's called genoism. Yes. Genoism. Yes. That's right. So this yeah. is where I think uh, Gattaca is actually quite interesting to think about the relationship between what happens with regards to uh, law in the books and the law in action. And this is where, as I was saying earlier, the, the issue around um, trust and distrust becomes important um, because what happens in terms of what's written as the law itself can be quite different from how people behave in the real world and what, how these uh, behaviors actually impact people's lives. And moreover, as we've seen in the past uh, year or so, 
issues of health and healthcare, it's a political football. That is that we as a society have, diff- have shifting standards and shifting expectations and shifting desires with regards to how we want our, the government to act with regards to issues of health and health care. And to say that GINA itself is a permanent law that always into the future will provide the type of protection that we expect is a bit of an overstatement. So while at this current moment that we're in, GINA is a useful um, way to provide protection to individuals. And there, even in, even now, there has been some interesting critiques of that. You know, we can't necessarily be certain that what happens in the next 5, 10, 20 years, that there won't be exceptions made or uh avenues created to allow uh, companies, corporations, and other entities to use this information in a way that we don't uh, find appropriate. H.R. 1313, if I'm not mistaken, was a Republican-backed bill that that did not pass, but what it was, was that it allowed for lower premiums for people that opted into genetic testing. So in other words, if you were willing to have your genome tested and and disclose it, then we'll say... Okay, we know this is coming down the road, but we'll let you actually have a lower premium just for the fact that you're giving us information, giving information to to private companies, but still. Right. And I think we have to kind of, while this effort didn't pass, we have to take a couple things into consideration. So one, the most uh, previous effort to change our healthcare laws was, in a broad sense, an attempt to create conditions for insurance companies to lower costs. Right. And so that attempt is not going to go away. And, and so that, that's one thing to keep in mind as we think about the future of these issues. Secondly, you know, we are many workplaces already have practices where they incentivize uh, uh, employees to participate in behaviors that allow the company to engage in certain forms of surveillance, whether it's counting footsteps or how many times you go to the, to the gym. You know, there, there's all these kind of built in incentives. And while you know, these efforts in their early uh, in their earliest iterations are, are a, little, a bit benign. Right. If you participate, you get, I believe, lower premiums or other types of, of goodies. You can imagine where this goes in the future in terms of creating incentives to allow your employer to basically surveil your your behaviors, your uh, uh, whether or not you're healthy or not, and whether or not you are uh, engaging in the types of activities and behaviors that will keep their healthcare costs low in terms of providing insurance for you. And so again, this is all efforts that are creating conditions for society that you know that may not look like what Gattaca looked at in the film itself. But again, we're getting closer and closer to a, a vision where uh, individual behavior and genetic predispositions may shape the way that other entities in society might think about you and what type of burden you may place. Going back to 23andMe, when you do have your genome tested, where does that all go? Do we know who gets that? I mean, we didn't know what Facebook was doing with our stuff, all of our likes and dislikes and friends and, mm-hmm. you know, purchases. So we know that there can be these, you know, almost a decade long gap in our what we're giving and when we find out what has been done with that. Do we have actual hard knowledge what is happening to our genomic makeup when we do go to 23andMe, when my girlfriend's daughter went and had her her test done? I mean, it's, it's like a hot thing to do, but do we, so was Facebook 20 years ago or 15, 10 years ago, whatever. Um, do we know? So yes and no. Uh, we, we, I think um, you know. I think anyone who signs up for this should look at the terms of service agreement that they sign. Um, but you know, as you're suggesting, uh, Nancy, it's not always clear what the downstream consequences are when you participate in these type of activities. Uh, so as you said, you know, Facebook's a great example. Many people, um, many 
friends and family of mine have signed up for Facebook thinking that it was just a rather benign way to stay in touch with other people. And now they're realizing that their participation in, in Facebook may have contributed to the outcome of the 2016 election in terms of how this data gets amassed and analyzed and used and targeted as a way to uh, shape people's perceptions, right? And um, again, you know, you can't always be sure about what's going to happen in, in the future, but uh, this is where we need to have a broader public conversation uh, about what does it mean to have democratic oversight of these type of new technologies to ensure that certain things should be kept off the table, or at the very least, that these companies are crystal clear to their to consumers about what the um, overall impact might be. I think, to me, you know, when I when I'm watching all this happening, and so I, I have a PhD in molecular and cell biology, so I I'm aware of what genes mean and and what you know how that interacts with your life and with the environment and what it does and does not mean. But you know, I I, I guess I I want to say that I do feel like to me this all kind of boils down to the fact that our education, science education, is not great. <laughs> that, you know, people, the public, so to speak, uh, the public's understanding, um, meaning just people that don't have an advanced degree like myself in this topic, don't have a great grasp on what genes are and what, you know, sequencing your genome means and what it doesn't mean. Um, which also means that, you know, since in theory our government is responsive to our people, it's, you know, it's people asking for certain protections that are really going to be effective in the long run because you know if, if we all understand what this means and and how we want it to be used and how we don't want it to be used then we can hold our our government accountable mm-hmm. um but right now you know there's a lot of kind of you know both ends of the spectrum people are either really suspicious of these companies that are sequencing your your dna or they're not suspicious enough <laughs> Um, and, you know, kind of going out and making sure that people understand this and answering questions and talking to people, I think, is is part of, you know, the end goal, you know, doing real kind of public engagement and, and public education so that people can understand what, what they're committing to and what they're agreeing to. What are they committing to and agreeing to right now? Yeah, I mean, so... You did, you did an ancestry test yourself. I did, yeah. So you must feel comfortable... Know it, not knowing, but knowing. So I did not get my whole genome sequenced. And that's one distinction that I think gets lost a lot. So Ancestry and 23andMe, they look at a lot of genes, but, but they don't sequence your entire genome. So they do these targeted sequencing where they're looking at an area that they know is correlated to something. Um, and in some ways, that's better because they don't, you know, they don't have access to every single genetic information about you. They just have access to many and very important ones. So there's that's one line that I personally haven't um, stepped over. Is it possible to get your entire genome? It is possible, and it's getting cheaper and cheaper. How much does it cost? Um, gosh, so I heard recently an estimate that you could probably do it for a couple hundred dollars. Is it through the same companies or different? No, no. Um, Although, you know what? That's a good question. Maybe... it's We don't know. We might have to look into that. We might have to, okay. But yes, so I also heard that there is some some murmuring, and now we're kind of speculating, and I I don't want to totally do that, but 
there are some people that are starting to talk about, you know, if we can use this information medically in a positive way, would it ever be um, a good idea to instead of have people pay to do this to actually pay people to do this so there's you know this this is a way in some ways to address the concern of access that you know if there really is a lot of positive good that can come out of your genome which there is you know there are many important decisions that you can make knowing you know your medical predisposition for something by by way of answering that speculative question isn't it the same thing as lowering your insurance rate isn't it in a way the same thing as just giving you a reduction in your insurance. Yeah, in, in some ways. You're yeah. incentivizing. I mean, you're not giving a person. But Tony, you're well, suggesting it's a form of coercion, perhaps. Yes. Yeah, so it raises questions about coercion. And, you That's know, a strong but, word, but. while, right, it's a strong word, but it, I think, you know, in this case, it's not inappropriate. Um, you know, it's doing that, though, at the same time that it's trying to address the question of access, because if there is an advantage to having this information about yourself and being able to use it to make medical decisions, um, then that would go to people that can afford to do these testing. So paying people to do it, or at least, you know, covering it fully, making it fully covered would address one ethical concern of living in a world where it's very cheap to sequence your genome. But haven't we been collecting blood samples from every child born in the United States since like 1984? In California. Yeah, in California. So, where where the, that, so if you have the blood of a newborn infant, um, and that blood carries, I mean, with that blood sample, you can do a fully full on sequence uh, of a of a person, right? I believe that is also targeted. It's not the entire genome. But it is still at, at least some data uh, on every child. But who has state. that? Who owns that in within the state of California? Who owns? Who has that data? Who has that blood? So I think Nancy, you're you're asking really important questions. And again, I think it's, it's appropriate here to uh, recognize that in light of what we've learned about the role of Facebook and Cambridge Analytica in the 2016 election, people are now asking new derivative questions about other entities that are holding data or information about themselves, and people are increasingly concerned. So put differently, uh, I don't think I, I don't think this is a mere coincidence. I think people are now starting to see connect- connections between what is uh, what does it mean to have unfounded trust in a social media company, and whether or not we're having the same type of unfounded trust in either the government in terms or other types of private entities when it comes to biological information. And I think these are all great questions that we should be asking. And it really gets back to, to Lee's earlier point, which is, you know, do we have the critical capacity to actually ask these questions in a way that's meaningful and that puts demands on government to make sure that everything is done in an appropriate manner? It feels like right now we're in that early stage, and this has been for a very long st- period of time with genetic testing that we have all been, wow, look what we can find out, you know, look what we can know about ourselves. And that's gone on for a very long time, while at the at the very same time, the ability to gather that information, and not be aware of where that information can go and how it can be used either for or against you potentially, um, is kind of that same euphoric moment when Facebook first started and everybody was jumping on saying, I don't care, it's great, I can talk to so-and-so who I used to know in high school and we can, wow, I saw them again. It's like we we live in these moments where we're, where we have this new technology and we're excited about it and we 
as a society, we don't really stop and say, wait a minute, where is all that going? How is it going to be used? And in terms of, you know, the blood that was captured, my daughter was born in 1984. So I know that somebody somewhere has her blood that they could potentially test and who knows how that could be used. Um, I mean, and the potential for that, that information to be either in positive hands or in hands that could have ulterior motives or could have self-interest motives. Um, who knows what, where that goes? Yeah, and you know, you know, there's an old saying in Silicon Valley, you know, when someone's offering you something for free, you're the product, right? So the person is a product. And I think, you know, while 23andMe and other testing companies aren't free, they are relatively, you know, cheap and getting cheaper. And so there is a corollary going on to the extent that people have to realize that when they participate in these type of tests, they may very well become a product that is sold to a third party and used for purposes that they didn't anticipate. So you're right to ask all these questions, Nancy. And, you know, to get back to a point that Lee made earlier, which is, again, on the on the lack of education to engage these questions, you know, I actually see it as being uh, a little bit, a little bit worse than that. So not only is there a lack of capacity to engage, but there's also a kind of pre-existing ideology and mythology about DNA that has come to kind of fill in the lack of education. That is, you know, people tend to have a particular uh, understanding of DNA being this kind of very reductionist thing that necessarily can tell you everything about yourself. It's become, in a sense, the new form of religion. It's something that people over time have come to worship, the idea that uh, DNA contains all the information about us and can be used to not only tell us everything about who we are, but can be used to predict things that we may do in the future. And that mythology has been around for decades, You know, going back to the eugenics movement and eras of scientific racism in the late 19th century. And so when you have that ideology kind of swimming around our society for that minute, for that long, and that ideology now runs up to new tools and new techniques that can tell us some interesting things about ourselves, it's a very toxic mix in terms of what people think that what these new technologies can actually do for us in a society. You know, we're at a very troubling time, and this is going to require some really deep thinking about what it means to get our hands around this and to make sure that, you know, folks are, are fully uh fully participating in the process of making sure that, you know, things go in the right direction. But how do you fully participate in this? At this point, Mm -hmm. it's like, oh, how would three years ago, how would you fully participate in making sure Facebook wasn't using your data to influence the 2016 election in 2014? I mean, how, how do we, how do we grasp where we are right now? So I think, um, you know, I think, you know, five or seven years ago, no one would have thought of Facebook as being political. They would have thought of it as a neutral uh, site where people kind of came together and reconnect with friends and family. No one would have said it has a particular political motive to it. Now, people understand that Facebook and other forms of social media are explicitly political. And so similarly, I think you tend to think of science and technology as being benign and neutral uh, ways of improving human health and health outcomes. And now we're starting to have an important conversation about understanding that there are actually certain political aspects to science and technology. And again, many scholars and academics have been talking about the political aspects of science and technology and medicine for many, many years. And I think we're now starting to have a public conversation about, you know, while science and medicine can do wonderful things in terms of improving our health, we also have to understand that there are certain political aspects of it in terms of, as you were saying, Nancy, how certain third parties can take advantage of our private health information for their own private benefit. Lee, question for you. Yeah. <laughs> what, what does the, I know one of the things that you look at is the regulatory landscape uh, surrounding biotechnology. 
Um, and I was wondering if you could speak to that. What does it look like? Because that was one of the things that we had a hard time wrapping our head around. It seemed like there wasn't just one governing body, say. There seemed like there were multiple entities that would have an impact on, on regulations impacting biotechnological advancements. Who's watching? So it it de- it depends on what you're specifically talking about. But in general, um, you know, there's entities like the FDA, um, and the USDA and the EPA um, that are charged with regulating, and specifically the FDA charged with regulating, you know, more medical biotechnologies. Um, and they do that from a perspective of is it safe and is it effective? And do the benefits outweigh the risks on a case by case basis? Mm-hmm. Um, so they take a predominantly scientific approach. And, and one thing to note that I think sometimes people don't realize is that the role of agencies like the FDI is not to assess whether or not something should happen. So that that question of values isn't, they don't have a mandate to look at that. That's not their role. Their role is to look at the scientific evidence of the application itself. So whatever you're trying to do with the biotechnology, um, to look at it on a case-by-case basis and determine, you know, do you have data that suggests strongly that this application is safe, meaning med- medically safe? And that's an important distinction because they're not saying, is it socially safe? They're saying, is it medically safe? Um, and is it effective? So does it do the thing that you say it does? Um, and there are cases where, you know, not safe is kind of a spectrum and so is effective. And, and they weigh where on that spectrum your application lies with respect to what you're trying to do. So if you're trying to treat a patient that's terminally ill, whether, you know, how safe, what kind of um, uh, side effects are are possible is probably different than if you are trying to treat baldness, you know. So um, they do this kind of on a case-by-case basis, and, and that's generally how the U.S. does it, is we, we regulate... Um, products, not processes, for that reason, because the way you apply it makes a difference. Um, but uh, that should be also kind of <laughs> qualified a little bit because we do have um, a framework. It's called the Coordinated Framework for the Regulation of Biotechnology. And so this is a, a case where the FDA and the USDA and the EPA are given a framework for a process instead of a product. And they're still asked to look at it on a product case-by-case basis. But there's kind of a framework with which to look at those applications because, you know, the the government kind of understands that there's some unique risks and some unique challenges with biotechnology that we don't have for other more traditional medical um, interventions. So, so there's that. This is a very long answer no, to your yeah. question. <laughs> so there's that, but then there's, um, you know, and that's that's regulation. But then there's governance, and governance is kind of different. You know, these are things like norms, what's considered appropriate in the scientific community and in the medical community. Um, there's more codified types of um, governance, like um, institutional review boards that you have to go through if you're going to do a clinical trial. And they do kind of consider things like ethics uh, when they're looking at your application. And then there, you know, the other one that I think gets forgotten a lot 
is journals. So in science, you know, one of the big drivers um, for researchers is publishing your work. And you do that in journals. And there are actually um, sets of standards that journals put in place um, that speak to certain types of applications and ethics involved. Um, And if you don't meet those standards, you don't get published in those journals. So in some ways, that's a really important gatekeeper for things like values and ethics. So are you saying that these three methods, the journals, the IRB, and what was the first one? Uh, Government regulatory bodies. Right. So does that mean that any time a a genomic process is considered or validated or verified by the FDA, EPA, and what was the other one? The USDA. USDA, that they have to meet those standards before it can be approved as a process? If by those standards you mean the standards of those agencies, then right. yes. Yes. So, so if we all are reading journals scientific journals, and we're all paying attention to approved institutional review board processes, and we're paying attention to governance review, we might protect ourselves. Yeah. um, Yeah. And I I would also say that, you know, beyond those, there are other forms of governance rather than regulation. Like, um, there are societies, there are professional societies that play a really large role in, in deciding what you should and shouldn't do. I don't even know where to turn in in many ways right now in terms of protecting, you know, having that wake up call um, and feeling that uh, you want to kind of reach out to everyone and say, be careful how much you give up right now. Be careful what you give uh, or what in, in terms of trying to find out about yourself. Be careful what what information you're allowing entities to collect about you and where that goes. So, Lee, why don't you just in your closing, why don't you tell us why did you do that ancestry test? Yeah. So for me, you know, I I actually chose the test that looks at ancestry. um, And there's a version on 23andMe that is not medical. It's it's also looking at ancestry. Um, Partly because I, you know, I hadn't really come to a conclusion about what I wanted to do with that medical information and what I wanted to know and what I didn't want to know. So I, I restricted my search to just finding out about uh, family history, so to speak. So ancestry, where where my um, ancestors came from. And I, I went with uh, the company Ancestry. And, and now I don't want to <laughs> give, um, you know, I'm not trying to sell the Ancestry test. But, but I did note, um, you know, when I thought about it, I did look at their terms and conditions. And they do say um, that your DNA, your genetic information is yours, so you own it. So you can ask them at any time to remove it from their servers, um, which to me was, that was a good selling point. <laughs> um, and, and, and as well, they say they don't share it uh, with third parties unless you give your explicit um, consent to do so. And of course, you know, all of those privacy things are them offering them to me. It's not clear legally, you know, if they broke that promise in their terms and conditions, what would happen to them? But I thought the fact that they that they recognize that this is an issue that a lot of people are, are talking about and wondering about, um, that was a very, uh, very promising thing. With that, that's all the time we have for In Studio. We'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you think about getting your DNA tested and have you done it? And how much do you know about what's being done with it? 
Or if you have a question about the law or you know of a news story you want us to sort out, send an email to connect at lifeofthelaw.org. Be sure to include your contact information so we can follow up. Thanks to our in-studio team today, Asagi Obaski, professor at the UC Berkeley School of Public Health and a member of our advisory board, Tony Gannon, our senior producer, Andrea Hendrickson, associate producer, and Lee Witkowski, policy analyst with the Innovative Genomics Institute at UC Berkeley. Rachel Kane is our social media editor. Katie McMurrin is our engineer here at KQED. We also want to take a minute to thank listeners who have made donations to help us at Life of the Law make our 100 by 100 challenge of raising $10,000. These funds have made it possible to complete production on this and upcoming episodes. Make a donation by going to our website, lifeofthelaw.org. We're a nonprofit project of the Tide Center, and we're part of the Panoply Network of Podcasts from Slate. You can also find Life of the Law on PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Next on Life of the Law. There are individuals who may very well face horrible things in their home country. They somehow are able to escape, escape out of the clutches of whatever horror, whatever problem, whatever issue that they are facing. Come to the United States. Meet the convention's definition of a refugee. Meet that well-founded fear of being persecuted standard. But not actually be granted the rights enumerated in the Refugee Convention. That's next on Life of the Law. I'm Nancy Mullane. Thanks for listening.